Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Another episode of the Forgotten Light Dice Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Edwards, and with me, of course, the game tie-in to our 28-part series, Mr. Robert Lundgren. How you doing? Hello, hello. Doing okay. We've had a we've we've had a month off again. <laughs> I take no blame for this. I felt guilty that I had to cancel once because of work, and uh you up the you up the stakes, man. Hey, man, it's I, I, I may have no shame. It, it's summer. And you know what? Making my family happy takes precedence over over podcasting because we don't get a lot of summer up here in the PNW. So we have to grab it by the horns and run with it while we can. Yeah, I, I really can't blame you. Yeah. I mean, in Texas, the weather is just awful for what, eight, eight to ten months out of the year. I mean, by awful, do you mean the hell uh, on Earth? Because if that's what you mean, then yes. Yeah, yeah. From what I remember, yeah, yeah. There's like two months of winter and then one month on each side surrounding winter where it's like, okay, out. And then it's just hot. <laughs> hot. And winter don't joke around. It snows and freezes over sometimes. It's weird. No, that's no joke. That's no joke. Yeah, no, no. Here it's, uh, there's there's three, four really, really pleasant, sunny, nice, pretty, very pretty months. And then it's just gray and rainy and not even rainy, just drizzly. And yeah. You're months. after my own heart. That just reminds me of growing up on the coast. Yeah, yeah. The marine layer, kids, it's the thing. But yeah, it's weird, Jonathan. Uh, uh, looking at the weather report, it appears that Summer is going to pack her bag and leave uh, the day after tomorrow. Like tomorrow, we're going to get the high in the 90s, and then it's going to be cloudy and the mid mid 70s, like cloudy mid 70s, like according to the weatherman, possibly for the next two weeks. We'll see how that actually shakes out. But yeah, we had yeah, uh, um, might be over steady temperatures in the high 90s uh, for a long time, and then all of a sudden. We got a cold front and it's now in the, the mid 70s during the day. And it's, dare I say it, dipping into the 60s, low 60s at night. Oh, my. Which for this area, this time of year, it's a little early. It's a little early. Well, as always, let's go ahead and get this episode started with a big old thank you to our patrons over Patreon. You guys are helping us keep the lights on and the witty banter flowing. Because of the Rona, because of everything that's going on, I thought today's National Day was the most appropriate. Jonathan, happy national online learning day oh that is rather appropriate yeah also yeah. coincidentally what i've been doing a lot of uh for a living lately yeah 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 so there you go uh yeah i i didn't even i, I didn't even look this up i just assumed everybody is kind of into it but I, it's becoming clear i listened to a podcast uh where there's a guy who's a seventh and eighth grade teacher and he's talking about how no he's he's back in class right now with like desks spread apart and stuff and i'm like that just uh bleh. We have a friend that's a teacher, and um, the school district here was just given the opportunity to go back if they wanted, and she said that only about uh, uh, 10% of her students are, are showing up in person. Well, at least you can keep them separated like that. Yeah, that does make it a little bit easier, without a doubt. But yeah, if you're an online student or educator, September 15th is your day. Hashtag online learning day. Go use it on that social media. I think I think a lot of us are there. 
Well, let's go ahead and log into our first segment for the night. That is, of course, our off-the-shelf segment. This is our segment where we talk about all the wonderful things we've had off the shelf, onto our tables, and into our hearts. And, uh, yeah, even though it's been a month, Robert, I don't have a ton. I have a ton. <laughs> I have so much. Oh, my God. All right. Well, where do you want to begin, then? Uh, let's shake it up a bit. Start in actual board games. So we, the reason we couldn't record last week was because I was out of town again, because wouldn't you know it, the hospitality industry is kind of down and my parents haven't had guests in forever. So we decided to go back up to the grandparents' house for a week just to check in with them again and see the, the lovely Olympic Peninsula during the summer, which we have not gotten to see because usually they're in the middle of their busy season. And they don't have any space for us, but uh, yeah. While we were up there, I dragged up a Potion Explosion, and uh, we didn't play that, but we played Camel Up 2nd Edition a ton. A ton. Awen got really into it, and uh, Uncle Scat got really into it. So, yeah, we, we played quite a few games very late into the night. And, uh, yeah, fun was had. Fun was had. And it was interesting because we had been playing it on tabletop simulator recently enough i actually could spot the differences between second and first edition which uh was interesting so yeah yeah just a few little subtle changes but it, it makes the uh the experience a lot better in second edition than first so yeah mm -hmm. i have yet to play second edition i really want to because i love first edition i'm just curious to get a feel for the differences yeah the, so nothing from from what i'm reading nothing from the expansion made it in except for like the uh the the six player plus like uh uh not handshake I, it's a picture of a handshake on the token but the the i forget what the term's called but you know where you, you you pal up with another player and you can borrow some of their stuff i think that's from the original expansion they put that in the base game but other than that uh no, nothing else did but the reverse camels are quite nice it uh, it really does shake up the board when they come into play because you know, sometimes just with the way things shake out, like certain camels can get a really wide and early lead. And yeah, man, but if they've got a, a camel in front of them, uh, we, we had that where it happened, where uh, the, the early, early front runner, early front runner got taken all the way back and ended up third at the end of the race just because of the way the wild camels going in reverse shook out. So that was kind of fun. That sounds awesome because I don't there's no reverse camels in either of the no expansions for the first edition. That sounds and, and different. It changes the betting because there's six dice in the pyramid, but you only use five during a leg. So, yes, the, 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 if the wild camels go, it means one of the, the color camels will not go. And it does shake things up because, you know, you reset everything after you roll five dice, not all six. That sounds cool. I like that. Yeah, no, it's it's really good because, yeah, you get to the end of the turn and, and it happened. I, I bet I bet big on one turn on something that I wanted to happen to happen. Like if I, I went all in on like yellow, I think, and I'm, and yellow had to go and yellow had to go at least two spaces. But if yellow pulled that off, like the, the camel that was on top of yellow would be in front <laughs> and like way in front. And so I bet really hard. Like I, I went in on the, you know, like this is the overall winner. And I just spent the whole turn betting that. And then, and nobody, you know, no, everybody thought I was betting on the other thing. And then I, I shook the dice and I rolled exactly what I needed to roll. Actually, it had to go three because there was a plus one tile there but yeah i rolled exactly what i need needed and i bet i i i am not ashamed to admit i screamed very very loud when that happened uh, <laughs> quite loud oh yeah that is the sign of a good game yeah yeah but that was like at 11 30 at night when the folks were trying to sleep <laughs> how'd that work for you 
all right because luckily they have a and b and their private area is somewhat separated from where all the uh, the guests hang out so uh yes they did not hear that thank thankfully thankfully <laughs> but yes i was like yeah yeah that was a good that was a good one and everybody everybody thought i i cheated somehow everybody thought it was like witchery or something but yeah no it was it was a good game it was a good game i mean i wouldn't put it past you uh i would not cheat at a, a children's game no i meant the witchery no- Oh, the witchery. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do have some dice witchery that I believe in. But yeah, no, I uh, I would not cheat, though, unless there was money on the line. Money on the line, I would think about cheating. But in this case, it was just fun. So it was fun that it shook out that way. Well, there you go. What have you been playing? Well, we've got uh, I, I got Flam Rouge out again. Um, and we've been playing it on Board Game Arena, too. Uh, I didn't get in on Flam Rouge, unfortunately. Oh, you I want to. Sack. I want to. I'm in the. Uh, the rally man game that's the thing i was thinking about rally man i got my wires crossed oh no no bicycle racing as opposed to car racing yes yes we're playing rally man not flam that that is correct sorry sorry i did actually teach flam rouge to a bunch of people uh on board game uh or pardon me on tabletop simulator and uh everybody had fun with it it's that game is pretty easy to teach and it's pretty universally loved so far Nice. It's becoming my new intro game. Yeah, well, it, it is pretty easy to play. It's like Camel Up, actually, like because uh, we taught Uncle Scott Camel Up, you know, and that, that, there's nothing to that game. But like the really high level math of it, <laughs> you know, it's like there, there's okay. more there than there, there appears at first glance. There's not a lot to learn, but there is a lot to master. Let's see whose turn is it on uh, Rally Man? Uh, I don't know. I went earlier today. Had a perfect role, actually. Ace Apollo must plan their trajectory. Oh, again? Is it me again? Because I went... I've gone gone twice today. All right, hold on. I'm going in. I'm going in. Okay. What color are you? Oh, Uh, you're... I'm green. You're green. Oh, I guess it is me. Did you not hit the uh, the correct button? No, because I I, I accelerated up to five, which is what I'm at right now. Okay, there you go. I am happy to report that I, uh, I really effed up on my first turn of this game. Did not bite me in the butt too hard. I appreciated that out of this game, I gotta say. Hmm. Oh, you're rolling. Oh, you're rolling individually. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Shoot. Oh, you're fine. Boosh. Look at that. Look at that. I'm catching up after a, a, a rough start. Yeah. Wife, it's your turn on Rally, man. There you go. Live updates on the game. Yeah. So what do you think we'll so far, just having played a couple turns? Uh, it's interesting. I'm not, I, I, I want to, I want to do another game. I'm like, just kind of getting my head wrapped around it. It hasn't quite, quite clicked. Like, how about this? Like the first turn I screwed up the second turn, I got my wife to show me what to do. And I, I had her do it. Cause she, she was actually responsible and watched a video on it. Whereas I was just fooling around. And, uh, so the second turn she did. So then the third turn, I pressed all the buttons and kind of walked through it with her. And she's like, yeah, that works. And so this next turn actually is the first one. I, I, I have a plan cause I ended where I wanted to end in the gear I wanted to end in. Um, because I have a plan going through the next and we will see how that shakes out if my plan works. So like I said, hasn't quite clicked for me yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm close. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Uh, so far so good. It's okay. Um, I don't have a ton of complaints about the game to be quite, honest with you it's a lot of risk and reward in this yeah a lot of yeah it. yeah i noticed that and i've been kind of lucky so far uh I, somebody's already spun out uh green i oh, did was yeah you. it was me yeah 
I just had a I I I was trying to stock up on uh, dice tokens and I I had a bad roll. Yep, yep, yep. And it was so. right on a corner in the wet, so it was uh, it was a full spin out. Ooh, bum 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 bum. But there. Like I said, so uh, talk to me about next time. Like I'm, I'm, I'm just starting to parse it. So we, I need another turn or two to, to kind of get it all put together. I'm liking it so far. Like I said, I want to play another game, but I don't have strong opinions on it yet. Does that make sense? That that is fair. Got out a deck of cards and I taught the kids how to play uh, solitaire, which was kind of fun. No. Nice, nice. And then um, I got sucked into Canasta again. I cannot stop. I may, in fact, be an 85-year-old man. Are, are, are you having fun in the retirement community? Are you going to sneak out with your friends and go take a dip in the pool with the weird rocks in it? I mean, yes. Feel young? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I just, I can't stop. Do you want to hear something uh, that will break your mind? You ready for it? Fire. Uh, who is the dude with the mustache and cocoon? Wilford Brimley. Wilford Brimley. The Thank man you. who's looked 60 years old since he was about 32. Yeah, yeah. And he died recently. It's very sad. That is very sad. He also in Cocoon. The Thing. Let's not forget his turn in The Thing. Yes. He in Cocoon is the same age that Tom Cruise was in the most recent Mission Impossible movie. Like I said, he's looked like he was 60 <laughs> since he was 32. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what's the one. line from Scrooged? Uh, starring America's favorite old fart. <laughs> I remember and at the time the, the poor guy was only in his 40s yeah 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 mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i wonder if he's scottish you know it's 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 zero to 60 and then 60 to 62 uh takes another 30 years all right hold on i'm gonna i'm gonna look up the wilford brimley on the uh on the we the gotta Beatus? find out if he's no, we gotta find out if he's Scottish or not. Love me some, uh, love me some Beatus remixes on YouTube. His paternal grandmother's parents were Scottish from Glasgow. <laughs> the theory holds true. <laughs> <laughs> and on his other side, uh, his his other uh, other side was uh, from Lancashire. So that's that's it's on the same island. <laughs> the theory is holding true. <laughs> We got to win a Nobel Prize for science here, man. Yeah. Like we're doing, we're doing the Lord's work right now. I'm just saying. <laughs> anyway, sorry, sorry. Well, and then Carlos and I sat down and I taught him how to play a couple different flavors of Legendary. Uh, so we played Legendary Big Trouble in Little China, which is closer to the original Legendary game. Okay. Then we played um, the new Legendary James Bond, which we'll be talking about very soon. Also an offshoot of the original game rather than one of the encounters and then i taught him uh legendary encounters and we played predator because he's seen the predator movies and he was having a blast with those so those those went over very very well cool and yeah that's it for board games for me how about you i told you camel up second edition nothing else nothing else all right moving right along uh next up let's uh we're just going down the list here uh movies and tv Oh my God, man. Where do I start? I watch so much stuff. Start at the top of the list and work your way down. Start at the top of the list. Oh man, you suck. I really want to see that movie. What? Blood Machines? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm it's not really at weird, all sh- like French Nouveau horror. And I think that I'm totally into that. It's I, uh, I found it kind of pretentious. Yeah. It's French. What'd you expect? It doesn't really have a plot. Again, French. 
it's it's just all about these weird visuals and not a lot of substance there, just a lot of style. That said, I enjoyed I enjoyed watching it. It's I, I'm I'm usually not a sucker for those movies that are that are fun to watch. The only one where I watched it and I was kind of like in awe of watching it was uh, the latest Tron movie for some reason sucked me in like that. But most of the time that doesn't work on me. But both machines worked on me. I kind of watched it and I'm like this does not make any sense and it's kind of dumb but it's kind of fun to watch i mean if you've ever watched french cinema that that's about what you expect with french cinema there's a lot of visual not always a ton of script and story no no but um did you hear the story behind it uh it's based off of a music video that he did like it's a sequel to it they funded it on kickstarter there's there's a, a guy named carpenter brute he makes music um, and these guys made a, a music video from the, uh, one of the Carpenter Brute songs and they enjoyed doing the video so much that they thought they had an, an idea for an entire movie based around the, the, the video's premise. Yeah. That's, that's kind of how it was born. Kind of reminds me of like 40 K for some reason. I mean, here's the thing. It's three 45 minute episodes. I actually, no, it's three episodes that are 45 minutes in total. So if you get a, a week of shutter, uh, yeah, you should be able to finish that pretty quick. <laughs> there is not a terrible, lot of on shutter that is worth watching. Uh, uh, on one hand, it's uh, my next one, Cursed Films, uh, Blood Machines, uh, Mandy's on it, which I still haven't watched. And uh, the, they just put on the color out of space, um, which I also have not watched. Man, that movie looks like a hot mess that I can get behind. I really want to see it. Yeah, I. So here's the thing. Like I was I, I like the Lovecraft, but I heard about a body horror segment in that movie and I'm kind of weird about body horror. So I, I actually fast forwarded through the movie to just look at the body horror sequence to see if it would like trigger me, you know, <laughs> and survey says no actually i mean it's it's gross and it's really disturbing but i think i figured it out the the one that's like the fly gets me like i can't even watch the fly the fly gets every human being with a heartbeat yeah the one that almost got me actually was district nine like do that do not sell that movie short there's some body stuff going on in there that's really genuinely uncomfortable yeah yeah and it like it's, really it's, got- some, it's some kafka stuff you know yeah, and I think it's when it's like the point, you know, because the plot of the movie was about that, you know, and the plot of The Fly is about that. But like body horror, like the thing, it's it's body horror, like the thing, like it's gross and it's shape shifty, but it's not like the point. It's not like you as a protagonist is, are watching yourself turn into a monster. It's it's there are monsters <laughs> yeah. that do that. And that does it. That's squicky. And I'm like, Ugh. but it's not the ones that like really, really seep into my soul and just like leech all the life out of me. Like the fly, or uh, District Nine, or, or or just reading the synopsis of the Human Centipede movies. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't need those in my life. Those, yeah, those yeah. are just—they don't make any damn sense to me. I don't know why anybody would make a movie like that. Right, but yes, and there, I, there, I love it, I love horror movies, but that movie is just not—it's just senseless. Like I don't. Yeah, it, 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 it's torture porn mixed with body horror, and it's not yeah, a good mix. But I hate this new trend towards the por- torture porn stuff. It's it's senseless to me. Tor- torture porn's kind of torture porn's kind of come and gone. We've we've moved on to other stuff. Uh, we're getting back to like '80s slasher movies, actually. Like you know, like the Babadook and it, it follows and stuff. Those are the new hotnesses, and the really really weird slow burn like '70s style sa- satanic ones, like Hereditary and. Uh, Dude, yeah. I I saw that. Uh, uh, what's the other one from the Hereditary guy? Um, the the Midsummer. Midsummer, yeah. Oh, 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 that movie's rough, man. 
Yeah, but it's a slow burn, right? <laughs> oh, no, it's a total slow burn, and it's not... There's no body horror or anything like that. It's just, like, it's genuine psychological horror. And the whole damn thing takes place in this bright, bright sunlight. So it's not even jump scares or anything like that. It's just genuinely unsettling, unsettling psychological horror. Like, I was, I was impressed. I thought it was rather brilliant, actually. Well, there you go. I, I haven't seen that one. I've read a lot about it, but yeah. But yeah, that, that, that's kind of where horror has moved on to these days, which is nice. Speaking of slow burns and all that, uh, I was watching my stuff and I, as you know, am a fan of the Haunted Mansion Disneyland. That was my jam when I was a Disneyland groupie back in the day. And I was watching one of my random videos because I watch random videos about Disney attractions on YouTube because I, yeah, I'm one of those. Uh, and they mentioned that the Haunted Mansion stole a lot of imagery and stuff from the original 1963. Robert Weiss directed The Haunting. And I'm like, I've never seen that. And I've heard it's quite good. And so thank you, library. I went and got it <laughs> from the library. We watched it. And oh, my God, that movie held up. I was shocked how well it held up. Cause it's um, like nothing happens. Like there's, there's no ghosts or anything on screen. It's not like that Liam Neeson remake that they did with like shovel fulls of crappy CG. <laughs> oh, are you talking about the, the, there was a Jan de Bont movie, right? Yes. Yes. It was a remake of the haunting and it's, it's, it's bad, but the original haunting was really good. Cause it's, it's just all mood and it just, it's just this slow burn, awful mood. And it just like sucks you in and it's just really creepy. And you're like, Ugh. You know, you know, and, there's and, something yeah. to be said about a movie that can create mood. That That's one of the big things I like about the, the Denny Villeneuve movies, you know, like those movies are mood. Uh, and in the case of Sicario, it's an exercise in tension. Uh, in the case of um, uh, Blade Runner 2049, it, it's it's an exercise in exploration and discomfort of being in one's own body. The mood is an important thing, uh, and, and if you do it right, it can be a real effective tool. Yeah, yeah. Well, this movie is all about just creepy house, and uh, yeah, it was really done well. I really, really enjoyed it. I, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it, considering I, I've seen on HBO when I was a kid just the, the 1998 crappy remake. Well, I wasn't a kid. I was probably, it was in my twenties, but still my early twenties, but still I was a kid. It was 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, yeah. I remember watching on HBO and it was just bad. It was just, I mean, there were some like the, the little cherubic like kids in the bed, you know, and all the woodwork were kind of creepy, but yeah, just did the CG was too much. They overplayed their hand quite a bit, but yeah, no, I'd, I'd really recommend the 63 haunting. It's quite good. What, what, one would argue based on the complete lack of Jan de Bont movies in the theater these days that uh, Jan de Bont overplayed his hand. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but I did. <laughs> and that's why I'm here. <laughs> moving right along uh what else you have on there uh so speaking of uh shutter they have a, a documentary series i guess called uh cursed films and uh they did an episode of um imaginary worlds kind of on the same topic which is where i heard of cursed films and so i'm like uh okay i'll give the series a try and I'm glad I stuck around for, um, so I watched the first two episodes and I was real disappointed. Like it was bad because like, like, so it, it's supposed to be about, you know, cursed films, like cursed horror movies, you know? And so they, they hit up, you know, the highlight reel of, of cursed films. But, and, and, you know, hold on, let me, let me find the full list. Okay. So. Episode one is about the exorcist. Episode two is about the omen. Episode three is poltergeist. Episode four is the crow. And episode five was twilight zone, the movie. (laughs) 
And I am glad I stuck around because episode one, two were bad. Um, like for example, in the exorcist, you know, they're, they're, they talked to the, the girl who played Reagan. I'm blanking on her name right now. Linda Blair, Linda Blair. Yeah. They talked to her and they talk about how she got injured on the set and, you know, just the, her experience of filming it and whatnot. And, you know, but then they, for whatever reason, talked to a real exorcist about exorcisms and it was just kind of sketchy. And I'm like, why are you showing this guy? Like, what, what does this have to do with anything? And it was just bad. And in The Omen, it was kind of the same thing where, you know, they were talking about the making of the film and how, you know, like planes got struck by lightning and there's this weird stuff. And then they got like a Satanist on to talk about it. I'm like, why? Why are you on about this? Like, why are planes getting struck by lightning a weird thing that happens all the time? I know. I'm just saying like it's it it, it, it was just kind of it felt it felt like a Mari Pulvich thing. You know, it felt very sensationalized. I was kind of like, <laughs> this is this is terrible. This pregnancy test says you're the father. <laughs> but like I said, I'm glad I stuck around. Like if, if you were going to watch the series, I would say skip episodes one and two. They're garbage. But episode three, four and five were amazing. So episode three was about Poltergeist. And that was where they shifted gears from like sensationalizing it to really talking to the people about, you know, being in a cursed film and whatnot and how, you know, how it's kind of insulting to be be accused of being part of a cursed film because, you know, just bad things happened and these are real people and not stories and and letting people who have like a, a leg in this t- to talk about their experience of A, how calling what they did a cursed movie is just insulting and then B, talking about the actual filming. And so Poltergeist, you know, they had a lot of time with the guy who directed Poltergeist 3 and who was really good friends with the the girl who died, you know, the uh, uh, Marianne, whatever her disease. name is. Yeah, yeah, well, but it's the thought because after the first movie, uh, the older teenage daughter, she was killed by her boyfriend. After the second movie, well, the guy who was playing the villain who knew full well he was dying of cancer died of cancer, but somebody else died too. And so it was like, oh, Poltergeist is, you know, cursed. And they were all talking about like, oh, you know, it's because they used real bones. And like somebody was pointing out that they've been using real bones in Hollywood forever. That's not uncommon. It's way cheaper to get a skeleton, (laughs) a real human skeleton than a fake one. And like substantially cheaper. And so, yeah, horror movies use real skeletons all the time and you can get them yourself. It's not hard, you know, and people treat it like it was this big deal that we were using real skeletons in poultry guys. And it's like, I, the guy, I, I, no it, joke. I think you can order one on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And it's, it's substantially cheaper than getting a fake one. So, but it was really interesting. Like, yeah, Poultry Guys got into that. It got into like the human skeleton thing and how it's like it's a stupid thing to hang an urban legend on that. Oh, they used real skeletons in, in Poultry Guys and it made the spirits angry. And the guy was like, dude, like and they went back and they showed footage from movies going clear back into like the 50s, you know, of like this is a real skeleton. That's a real skeleton. You know, it's like, why, why don't we make up stories about that? And it's like because it's not fun. And, you know, I, it was it was good. You know, it was like trying to like you know, talk about what is a cursed film, you know, and trying to shake some of the, the stigma off of it, which it was a good turn for that series to take. And they followed it through with the crow, which, you know, talked about Brandon Lee dying on the set and what that, you know, like what it did to the poor actor who freaking shot him. Oh yeah. Uh, I think that guy ne- never ended up using a gun in a film again. And then the twilight zone movie, bravo to uh, Jonathan Landis for making me completely forget that it was him who directed that segment. Cause Oh my God, I had completely forgotten that it was him. Like I knew about the accident. Cause that's the thing. Like oh, with, uh, the, with the Huey crash. 
Yeah, with the Huey crash. Like, because we had talked about it in an episode of the show about the crash uh, when we're talking about the James Bond stuff, right? And, uh, you know, and we talked about that crash. And I'm like, I wonder after that point if there will be stuff. And, and so we saw that pop up and my wife was like, oh, that's the crash, right? And she had like never heard of it before really until we talked about it. And so we watched that episode. And yeah, like, like, like Jonathan Landis, I, that dude dodged jail and he's like lucky that he dodged jail. Like there, that, that was absurd. But like one of the, one of the people they talked to was the set designer of the Twilight Zone movie of that segment of the Twilight Zone movie. And, you know, it was, it was kind of heartbreaking because the guy was talking about, he based that ended his career basically in Hollywood. Like he, he was, he, he was a set designer and he was kind of like a middling set designer. And then they hired him to do that movie and they, and they said, yeah, this is going to be the big times. This is going to be your big break and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and then nope, <laughs> that, that was that, you know? And, uh, I, they, they actually showed the actual footage of the crash and it, it's, it's horrifying. Oh and yeah. Like, no, I mean like, yeah, I've seen it. It's yeah, it's rough. It's rough. Yeah. Especially if yeah. you understand what's going on. Yeah. And, and the fact that Jonathan Landis, I mean, it, that's all his faults. Like how he created a set where no one could tell him that, no, you can't have explosions going off that close to a flying friggin' helicopter, how they got a pilot who it was like one of his first gigs and he didn't feel comfortable about it. But Jonathan Landis was kind of a, a bastard to work with. And, you know, he didn't want to ruin his chances in Hollywood. So he didn't say anything, even though he didn't like it, how the actor guy, um, you know, he was saying he should have gotten a stunt double for this. He didn't have a good feeling about it, but you know, he was kind of, uh, he was kind of on the wane of his career and he wanted to do, you know, this was work and he needed to do it, you know, and it's just all this stuff. And it was just, everything was orbiting around Jonathan Landis and the fact that he really never worked again after that. Like I, I'm like, I'm not shocked. Like it, I don't know. And, and maybe it's the documentary laying more of it at his feet than possibly deserves. Cause it's a documentary and the guy tells story, but yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was rough to watch. Like it, that was a really good episode and it was a really good episode talking about, just like, you know, like Jonathan Landis hid the kids that died from the fire marshal because the fire marshal was also the child safety guy because they were doing a shoot at 2 a.m. They were breaking rules. And so he, he physically hid the kids from the people who were supposed to protect the kids safety. And so the fire marshal never knew that there were going to be actual kids in that actual shot. And oops. Yeah. You know, and then what happened happened. And it's 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 just horrible. Ugh. But yeah, no, it was a really good series. Like it, it, it's morbid, but it, it's it's a really good series. The three, four, and five were really, really good episodes, uh, especially them talking very frankly with people who were very directly affected by all this and and just you know regrets and how it haunts them and you know and and just kind of the whole notion that you know the urban legends of cursed films, you know, those they make for fun stories, but you know, there's real people's lives that were really traumatized during this and, and, you know, and kind of talking about that and it, it put it in a new perspective. It was, it was a good, the, the last three episodes were really good. Okay. So we started on twilight zone season two, uh, cause we turned on the CBS all access, which season two has been okay so far. Um, but the real thing we've been watching is star Trek lower decks because I'm a Trekkie trekker. I, I haven't what watched I, lower decks yet. I need to sit down and do it. It's, it's good. Um, it's, it's, some people hate it because it's silly and, you know, and, and they're way, 
it's kind of like it's kind of like a lot of modern cartoons where they do a lot of pop culture jokes. It's just every pop culture joke they do is at Star Trek's expense, you know. Like one of the characters, like uh, he, one of the characters has a girlfriend, and she's working with this other guy who's really hunky, and he describes him as that guy's Captain Kirk with a uh, trip Tucker sprinkles on top, or he's a he's a Captain <laughs> Kirk Sunday with trip Tucker sprinkles on top. I love it. Yeah, I love it. That's such an inside joke. That joke's like meta in a super way. They've been doing some good things with the continuity because uh, the ship is the USS Cerritos, which is a California class cruiser. So all the other California class cruisers <laughs> are named after cities in California. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then all of their shuttles are named after parks in California, uh, national parks mostly. Cause, so they have like the Yosemite and the, you know, whatever. Um, but they, the, the USS Cerritos' specialty is second contact. So what they do is after first contact has been made, they come in and they build subspace communication relays so they can start talking with Starfleet and uh, get them to sign all the paperwork and cross the T's and dot the I's. And that's their, that's their specialty. That's what they typically do. And I'm like, you know, honestly... In a universe like Star Trek, that makes sense. Like, you know, they're the grunts that come in and install the phone lines after, you know, after the the important people have made, you know, all the initial stuff. I would recommend. It's it's silly, and I get why people hate it, because it's it's not taking Trek seriously, but I don't know. I enjoy it. I'll watch it. I'll let you know what I think. So, and then because of the Timothy Dalton, I went out and watched uh, The Lion in Winter, his first movie that got him on the radar of Eon Productions. And I got to say, I was, it was weird because he was so young in that movie. He was like, I, I get why he didn't want to play Bond. He was, he was young. And I bet you Timothy Dalton smoked a lot because he did not have the gravel yet. Like his voice was real high. And well, it was the eighties. Yeah. Well, I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to figure out when did the gravel happen? Because like, I, it's like, okay, he definitely has it by license to kill, but he didn't have it here. And so I went and watched a movie that was like right in between and he didn't have the gravel yet, but he, he sort of had it. Cause there's this, he plays this like, uh, it's this like Italian thing where he plays an assassin, which is kind of Bondian in its own right. And there's, you know, he, he talks like he does in Lion and Winter, except there's this one part where he's at confession and he's getting information and he gets a little gravelly while he's whispering. And I'm like, that's the gravel. There it is, but it's not all the time. And I'm like, when does it happen? And it doesn't, it, there's, there's never a transition. Like I went up to, there, there's some movie he was in with, uh, uh, I forget the lady's name. It was like a sex comedy and it was really bad. Cause he, he marries, uh, this old way older lady. And I, I saw a clip on YouTube, but he's still talking like that. And then there's just a movie next where it just clicks in. And I'm like, that's when all the smoking caught up with him. It's right there. I just Googled <laughs> him and looked at images and there's so many pictures of him smoking. No, he had to have. He had to, and it just it it caught up with him just at, at like one point in his life. It's it's bizarre. There's also some pictures of him with a very disturbing mustache. Yes, yeah, it's quite good. He looks good with a goatee, though. Yeah, I, I, but I would highly recommend *Line in Winter*. It's it's surprisingly good. It, it it stars Richard Harris, who's always amazing. Yeah, yeah, um, and then I think it's uh, is it Audrey Hepburn. Okay, uh, it's Peter O'Toole as King Henry II, Catherine Hepburn as Eleanor of Aquitaine, a very super duper crazy young Anthony Hopkins as Richard the Lionheart, um, Nigel Terry as Prince John, Timothy Dalton as Philip the King of France. It's it's so well stocked with like young versions of actors you've heard of. It's it's shocking, and it's it's funny how chunky Anthony Hopkins was in his youth. Like he was a big dude, you know, he was built like me. Yeah, uh, it, look at him in the um, oh, what's the one the the the, uh, the HMS Bounty movie. I'll I'll have to check that out. I don't remember that one. He's a little thick in that one too. 
Yeah, yeah, it's weird. And Catherine Hepburn, whoa, that lady can act. Like, like she does the the like underhanded, like just just verbal like sass so well in that, and ver- and just vague threats. <laughs> it, it, it oh, it was a good play. It started as a play, and they filmed it as a movie. It was it was really good. I'd highly recommend. I, I was very pleasantly surprised. And then to round us out. Uh, we started making the girl go to bed earlier because school's about to start here in Oregon. Uh, can you believe it? Jeez, man, we're already uh, a quarter of the way through. I, I, I know, right? We start really late. Um, uh, we have been watching the boys. Finally, we got all caught up and we are fully caught. I haven't the, watched season two yet. So don't tell yes, me anything. We are, th- we are three episodes in the season two, but yeah, we watched the whole first season. What'd you think of the first season? I thought it was better than the comic. It, like, it, I really It's kinda, like straight up cuckoo banana pants, right? Yeah, but that, you haven't read they the They weaponize oh, a baby. I, you haven't read the comic. The comic is so much worse. This one is so much more accessible. But what's nice about it is it doesn't really follow the comic. It's like an adaptation of ideas from the comic, which is way better. Because <laughs> um, in the comic, the boys, they all have superpowers. They all, they all take Compound V, and they all have superpowers, including uh, Huey. Huey gets uh, shot up with it in like the second or third issue. And he gets like super strength and and durability, kind of kind of like the female has. Like they all kind of can do that. And Mother's Milk in the Do you know about Mother's Milk in the comic and why he's named Mother's Milk in the comic? No. Uh, his mom was on Compound V, and as a baby, um, when his mom tried to wean him from breastfeeding, uh, he got sick and died because he was getting Compound V through his mother's milk, and so he was breastfed for possibly into the comic. and they show mother's milk's mom in the comic and she's kind of like a she looks like jabba the hut but she has tentacles and her tentacles are not her arms it's where she gives her mother's milk and i will leave it at that oh that's a visual i didn't need (laughs) thanks for that i'm gonna send you body horror pictures all week now I will send you back pictures of Mother's Milk's mom from the comic. Oh, you. Aren't you glad they dropped that plot point? Moving right <laughs> along. Yeah, no, the bo- the boys is really good. I I really I really liked it. It was um it's really well acted and yeah, just it it does kind of everything it needs to do. And the guy who plays Homelander, holy god. Oh, dude, that guy's amazing. Yeah, no, he does a great job. He does a great job. I, I almost just uttered like he's carrying that show, but he's not because it's actually very well acted on every front. There's not a single person in that show that doesn't deserve to be there. Like they are no. all remarkable. Carl Urban makes me laugh hysterically so often in that movie or in that show, excuse me. And the other one that really stands out to me is uh, the guy playing the Aquaman ripoff. Oh, the deep. Yeah. 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 When he's having that whole conversation with the dolphin that he kidnapped. <laughs> creepy yet oddly satisfying yeah i don't know why they keep wanting me to feel bad for that guy like he's kind of a terrible per. well they're all terrible people but i just i just pity him constantly uh um also another reason why the uh, the show is much better in the comic is uh, starlight's character is way better in the show than the comic she has a lot more agency and is just a lot more active no she's great she's great 
because in the comic, when she finds, she doesn't find out what Huey's up to for, it takes her much longer to find out what he's up to because there's other superheroes that they're dealing with. They don't really deal with the seven. They, the, the initial arc is about the seven and then they move on to other superheroes and stuff um, for quite a while. And when it comes back round to the seven, that's when she finds out what he's up to. And then they pretty much break up and they don't get back together until near the end. Um, but yeah, like the fact that she's like doing stuff is, is nice. Cause she's a very passive character. And uh, one of the critiques of the comic, the boys, and it's completely true. Every female character in the comic book either gets murdered or raped by the end of it. And, uh, yeah, it's not cool. <laughs> it's really like it's all of the female characters are not done well, uh, in that comic and they are done much better in the show. So that's the, the purpose of an adaptation, right? Make it appropriate. Well, and I was thinking like Eric Kripke, Eric Kripke is the one doing the show and he did supernatural. And I realized like, uh, the boys isn't a superhero show. It's, it's a monster hunting show. Oh, without a doubt. Because the the whole thing about monster hunting TV or programming is you become the thing that you're hunting, and that's totally what's happening in that. Like that's the vibe I'm getting, and it's it's weird. Like you know, it, this is like his other big show after Supernatural, and I, it just reminds me a lot of Supernatural in a weird way. So, I mean, I, do what you're good at, I guess. But yeah, thumbs up. You got to watch season season yeah, two. Yeah, don't say three episodes out. It's coming. But, yeah, okay. Uh, all right. I'm spent. I watched a lot of stuff. Uh, what about reading? I've actually been on a tear with books. I've had a little bit of extra have time. You, have you there. watched anything? Because we did all me, man. Let's see. Uh, I watched Project Power on Netflix. Nice. Real mixed bag. Real mixed bag. There's a lot okay. to like there. And it's carried on the shoulders of two great performers. But the script is garbage. The script is... Oh, God, it's so bad. It's so okay. bad. Yeah, I got a chance to sit down and watch the first couple episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Really enjoying it. Still missing my Robert Stack, but uh, really enjoying it. And uh, still working my way through October Faction uh, an episode at a time when I have time. Yeah, you've been really busy. Yeah, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. This is the peak time for me, so I'm almost through it. The way out is through, my friend. The way out is through. There you go. Uh, Shall we switch to reading? Yes, uh, I bought Harlem Unbound and I have been so reading jealous. it. Yeah, it's a good book. It's uh, I um, it's interesting because reading it, if you don't know, Harlem Unbound is a Call of Cthulhu based uh, source book for the Call of Cthulhu role playing game, but set in 1920s Harlem. I really, I really want to watch that um, Lovecraft Lovecraft Country. Country too. Yeah, I've heard good things. Oh my god, yeah, I've I've heard the best reviews from people who whose opinion matters. Yeah, yeah. Well, the idea of mixing Lovecraftian cosmic horror with, you know, the unknowable horror and of, of racism, it, they kind of jive together pretty well. <laughs> there was a good episode of Imaginary Worlds just about that. Uh, yes, yeah, so Harlem Unbound, I guess you could call it the Lovecraft Country RPG. It's not the same, but it's it's got a similar vibe, I would I would say. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's Cthulhu in 1920s Harlem. Like that's that's the basic setup. But it gives you a lot of information about 1920s Harlem, all of which was news to me because probably because I don't live in New York, to be blunt. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was that was interesting stuff. And uh, I really appreciated how um, the guy who wrote it, his name's Chris Spivey, and he is black. He really wrote it knowing full well that it would be white people probably consuming that book for the most part. And so there's a lot of things in there about how... Yeah, you, you sent me a couple of passages that I thought were important and impactful. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's just kind of giving you permission to, it's like, yes, play black characters, play minority characters in this setting, and here's how you don't go over any lines, like, go, you know? Like, for one, it's like, yes, people use the N-word back in the day, just don't. <laughs> and, and, and he says, like, yes, I think, like, if this was a movie or a show set in the 1920s in Harlem, yes, you should drop the N-bomb because... That is what happened back then, and it's an ugly word. But the, th- the fact of the matter is you're sitting around a table with people who are supposed to be your friends. You should probably not be lobbing the N-bomb at each other. It's just not kosher. So just don't do it in a role-playing environment. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, makes sense, makes sense, you know? But yeah, there was there's a lot of good advice for how to, you know, how to play a minority character and how to not make anybody uncomfortable and just things to avoid. And, you know, I mean, and he talked a lot about like, you know, it's like, it's really easy to drop the N-bomb and being edgy. It's like, look, this guy's racist. He said the N-bomb. It's like, yeah, but racism is a lot more about actions than words. And if you want to play up the racism angle, like he goes into how to play into the racism angle and it's like, there you go. And, you know, it's like, yeah, that's a good point. Don't, don't just use, don't be all edgelordy and say a shocking word for shocking sake. Like, you know, actually, like if you're going to go there, go there and, and make the characters do racist things. So yeah, no, I, it was, I, I appreciate it. I need to, I need to kind of like uh, get to the adventures because that's that's the part I've been salivating for. But they're kind of in the back of the book, and I've been. I need to distracted. get myself a copy of that. I'm I'm very jealous that you have it. <laughs> it's good. It's good. All right, what have you been reading? Um, I've been reading a ton because I've had time uh, to read, and it, it's been a real nice way to kind of just relax a little bit. So, uh, let's see. I um, consumed the entirety of uh, the Expeditionary Force Book 12, Critical Mass, which was mm-hmm. awesome. Um, been having a really good time with that series. And the side series, born of it, uh, Mavericks Book 3, Free, Free Fall. And I think Craig Allison put on his uh, website that he has one or two more books coming out this year. So, that that's good stuff right there. That, that keeps me going two more books this year it's all it's september he's been averaging four books a year Jeez. okay it's amazing he only started publishing these books five years ago and i think he's like 15 16 books into it wow so yeah it's nuts man um and uh, i also started uh, the second book in the expanse series uh caliban's war hmm. so i am about i don't know maybe halfway through that now that's cool. How is it holding up to the TV show or vice versa? I very intentionally have not watched the TV show past season one. Oh, okay. Well, let us know. Because I wanted to consume the books before I consume the show. Makes sense. Gina's thinking about reading Dune for the same reasons. Uh, Dina should wear, uh, read Dune because Dune is amazing. Speaking of which, I forgot to bring it up in movies and TV. Robert, Dune Watch 2020. Jonathan, do you feel 2020 coming? Do you feel it coming? <laughs> the trailer is out and exceeds my expectations in every way, shape, and form. And the worm looks cool. You know, watching the trailer, it makes me realize why Paul is kind of a bad character to depict on film. Because Paul is supposed to be very measured and controlled because he is the Cuisinart hat rack. And, uh, the problem is it makes him seem kind of stiff and wooden, uh, when you actually see him done. Yeah, but that's the character that makes perfect sense. I understand that, but it makes him a not terribly interesting character to watch. 
And I, and I don't know. I was hoping I was hoping they could get somebody who could like play Spock good, you know, where it's like their surface is the lack of that stuff, but you can see the gears turning underneath. And I don't know if the kid they got playing Paul can do that. But then again, it's the preview, so who knows? Uh, it looks amazing, and my God, the casting in that. Yeah, What's Jason Momoa and uh, and uh, uh, Drax the Destroyer. I can't remember. Dude, his actual name. Drax as uh, the the Harkonnen. Uh, what the heck is his name? It's, is, is he the Baron? Is he the, no, he's the, not the Baron. Or he's is he the, Sting? Uh, Raban. Is he Sting? No, he's Raban. I don't remember. Yeah, Who's he, playing he's Sting? He's the, the, the other Harkonnen that, that tortures everybody. Uh, oh, okay. So who's playing Sting? Uh, hold on. I can't remember. Because <laughs> that's important. That's important, Jonathan. Who's playing Sting? Uh, I'll never forget. There's some DJs in San Diego that... Uh, interviewed sting and afterwards all that they would catch or uh, call him was stink because apparently he does just what i hear uh let's see here all right gurney halleck is josh brolin uh duncan idaho is momoa and he looks awesome in that yeah um yeah dave bautista is uh the beast beast raban mm-hmm. uh let's see here Jason Momoa will be the only one who's uh, in all the movies because he becomes a space zombie. Space zombie. Or space, space reverent, revenant, because he gets brought back from the dead. Not for vengeance, though. It's 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 a strange book. Javier Bardem is Stilgar, which is awesome. Really Mm -hmm. excited about that. Jason Uh, Isaacs dies again in a movie. Jason Isaacs. He's not Jason Isaacs. No, not Jason Oscar Isaacs, thank, sorry. Oscar what the hell, Isaacs. man? I was just watching stuff on Discovery about Lorca. Sorry. I'm only laughing because I did the exact same thing. Oh, okay. Because there's, there's Jason Momoa and Oscar Isaac, so your brain automatically says, oh, obviously Jason Isaac. Yeah, exactly. What is that character's name is going to drive me nuts? Uh, Fade. Fade Rautha. Uh, they have not announced yet, unless he's in the full cast. Uh, he's not listed in IMDb, so they have not announced yet. That's exciting. That means there's surprises. Mm, mm. Good to know. Good to know. Oh, oh, God, it's Bill Skarsgård. No, he's Sting? Y- yes. Oh, my God, that's awesome. And, you know, his dad, Stellan, is playing Baron Harkonnen. Oh, that's cute. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, this. Oh, Yes. Don't get me wrong. I like Paul. Like Paul Atreides is a good character. It, it's just, again, the, the main problem with, with him with Gurney and Paul. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. So good. The the problem with Paul is a lot of that stuff is going on underneath, you know. And uh, yeah, it's it's like playing Spock. You know, you gotta you gotta be able to be, you gotta have like the the emotionless up front, but the the behind the scenes are turning. That's one and, and thing I really liked about the '80s Dune is it it added the internal monologue, and that helps. Oh God! But it was so awkward. If, okay, their implement like a reed in the wind. The implementation was awkward. The idea was sound. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Dune Watch twenty twenty shaping up to be a beast. I gotta say, actually, everybody who's played Spock has been able to do that because uh, uh, Zachary Quinto did it in the in the movies, and the, I think his name's Ethan Peck uh, in Discovery. He was he was a good Spock too. Yeah, and he could do right. the thing where he's he's emotionless up front, but there's obviously stuff going on behind the scenes, and yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway, wrong sci-fi franchise. 
I'm excited. I, I like I said. I I think I Paul's just a, a terrible character for a movie. By, by the way, you know what I realized today when I was watching that, and they were talking about the um, her pain box. Yeah. You know the guy that wrote Seven was obviously a fan of Dune because that's basically what he created. He created a box with pain in it. <laughs> just saying. Never crossed my mind before. Now I can't stop thinking about it. Moving right along. Uh, RPGs. You already talked about Harlem Unbound. I I haven't played anything. You played that super secret thing that we can't talk about. I did play the super secret thing that I can't talk about. And we. I can't wait to talk about it because I think there's some interesting discussions to be had. But... Needless to say, I got a chance to play an RPG as a character and not a, uh, a GM. And man, that felt good. That felt good. It had been way too long since I'd done that. Once, uh, once summer's over, we're talking about firing up uh, a Star Trek RPG where we I'm rotate in. GMing duties. I am so in. So you don't you don't get to not GM all the time. <laughs> no, that's okay. I don't mind GMing. I really truly don't. But but our thought is that would help it keep the episodic nature of the show. Yeah. You know because you know guess right. And then. And then whatever characters you're playing just aren't in that episode or they are. But, you know, you know, it's like those episodes where Picard shows up for like a scene to Dude, do some exposition. I, I've never had a problem with a GM playing a character as as long as they do it with dignity and with uh, honor. You know, I, I, I don't like GMs playing characters that are like characters, you know, like they, they no, should no, be no, on the main character, but they should be able to they should be able to keep their character moving if they're part of a larger group. I'm totally OK with that. The, let's yeah let's move to video games round this segment out uh not not much to talk about uh i rented super mario odyssey from the library and it was funny yeah yeah the entire time i'm playing i'm like this game's just like a rehash of super mario 64 and yet i can't stop playing it <laughs> it does what it does but it does it really well that's right uh, I've been playing more Fall Guys because the children love watching it, the boys especially. They started playing, uh, they they found their sister's old Peppa Pig's action figures, and I came in today and they were playing uh, F- Peppa Pig Fall Guys where they were having them run through obstacle courses and then getting eliminated. It was adorable. You better trademark that because that could be a thing. That could be a DLC <laughs> pack. Uh, I'm going to trademark uh, Peppa Pig, which is an IP I don't own, in Fall Guys, which is an IP I don't own. That's going to work no, out well. Together, John. together. That's still going to work out well. Um, and then I beat finally Zelda Breath of the Wild, and I thought I wasn't getting my money's worth out of that game until I looked at how long I've been playing that game in my hours played. And I'm like, was it racking up hours where I just like had saved it and exited and, you know, and, and it was like technically on all night? Because it says I've played 102 hours of that game, but I kind of don't buy it. No, I do. You played the living daylights out of that, man. Uh, but I'd only play it for like an hour or two, like every day for like a couple of weeks. That's 102 hours. A lot of time. That's almost as much time as I put in the dragon quest 11. Yeah, I, I buy it. I buy it. You, you talked to me a lot about that. Yeah. Well, it was a good game. I, I beat it. I, I did all the shrines, although I had to use a guide to get the last 20 or so. Cause they were kind of obtuse and hard to find after a while. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that was, that was fun. It was a good time. It's a good game Can't I, wait for the sequel. I too have been playing a lot of fall guys. Um, having a blast with that. I mean, it's so stupid, but I can't help but to adore it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also, um, not only did I beat the last of us, but then I sat down and I got sucked into last of us too. And wow, that is the best video game I've ever played in my entire life. It's getting such mixed reviews. It's weird. It, and either people love it or hate it. It's so bizarre. If somebody hates it, it's because they didn't like the direction of the story. And I understand why people would not like the direction of the story, but that doesn't make it accurate or that doesn't make it not accurate because 
the one thing that Last of Us 2 does so damn well is it sticks to its characters, it sticks to their behaviors, and it sees it through to the end. And it does not pull punches. And it makes for uncomfortable, awkward moments as a viewer. And that's okay because it is so true to the characters. Everything those characters do from start to finish in that game is in support of their characterization. And the plot is, it's perfection. It's beautiful perfection. It's the best video game I've ever played, without a doubt. Which is not to say it doesn't have its flaws or its problems, but it's the best video game I've ever played. Like, I wish, I wish, because uh, many, many years ago, uh, back when he was uh, still still with us, Ebert had made some comments that he didn't think video games could ever be filmed. And I wish he had... No, 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 no. He didn't think they could ever or be Or he art. could uh, never be art. Excuse me. That's what I meant. Yeah. Uh, and... I wish he had lived to see this because I think he would have taken back his comments legitimately. Not only should you play last of us because last of us Two, it will not impact you the same way if you haven't played last of us, but it, last of us two is an important moment in video game history. It is, it, it, it's like the first time I've ever seen an Oscar worthy game. Also, I played Spider-Man, which is still super fun and great and a lot darker than originally I thought it was going to be. It's it's holding a couple notes too long. Like some of the fights are just too long. I'm almost to the end. I'm like 82% according to the thing and I do, I do all the side missions, so I'm I'm almost there. I'm almost to the end. Yeah, I I haven't played since I finished out the side mission about crossbones and I did it really early. Crossbones? Tomb Tombstone, Tombstone. There oh, okay. Go. I was going to say crossbones. What? No. Yeah, no, it was Tombstone, Tombstone, yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of our first segment, which means, of course, it's time for a short break. But when we return, it's time for our Wisdom of Crowds segment. Do you have a tabletop, board game, miniature game, or RPG that you're going to release for retail? Or do you have an upcoming tabletop Kickstarter that you're about to launch? We would love to interview you for a future episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. Send us an email to fmdpodcast2016 at gmail.com to schedule an interview. And welcome back for that break. It is now time for our Wisdom of Crowd segment, our bi-weekly tabletop news segment. Yeah, so a little bit of a downturn on the news quantity. I think we're getting a little late in the year, and we're, we've, we're, we've already seen what's coming out in the holidays. So I, get, I think we're going to go into our second lull before the uh, beginning of the year as things ramp up for Gen Con, yeah? We're in that post-Gen Con blues. Oh, post uh, whatever we called it this year, because I don't think we could call it Gen Con, because it really wasn't. <laughs> it was everybody's Gen Cants. That's right. <laughs> 2020, Gen, Gen Can even. <laughs> so some news for FFG if you're a fan of Marvel Champions which I am there's going to be an Ant-Man hero pack <laughs> nice which is awesome and uh, yeah the big thing is that they are working into his cards the ability to change size from uh, tiny guy to giant guy oh nice so it will have two distinctly different forms and Ant-Man's hero form actually the card folds out into a double sized card when he's in giant mode. <laughs> That's cute. I like it. So it also has a bunch of resource and upgrade cards with different effects. And um, Ant-Man has the leadership aspect, 
which means that he can bring um, multiple allies that can be bolstered by his suit. Oh, so that's how they're going to work in the Wasp and a couple other characters. Nice. I like it. I like it. So there you go. It's scheduled for October. So right around the corner, there's also going to be a playmat that they're uh, bringing out for it. The Ant-Man playmat. So there you go. If you're an Ant-Man fan, now's the time. Strike hard. WizKids has announced a ton of licensed fantasy miniatures for you to paint. First up, we have Magic Unpainted which are based off the of characters from the Magic the Gathering universe. Uh, based off of the previews I've seen, half of them seem kind of Ravnica-based, you know, because they mentioned the guilds like Azorius and Boros and whatnot. And the other half, they're either generic fantasy or they're Zendikar-based. It's kind of hard to tell. But yes, unpainted Magic minis. They also announced Pathfinder Battles Deep Cuts, which is a new set of unpainted miniatures. Nolzer's Marvelous Character Packs, where they're releasing uh, what it says on the tin character packs. I don't know if you've seen these. Uh, typically, they come with two characters, kind of the low-level and the high-level version of the same person. It's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to get out, like, every class and race combination from the player's handbook. It's it's getting pretty absurd. <laughs> and then last but not least, something I know that will cut to the core of your heart. Deep Cuts viking town they are releasing an entire set of viking of a of viking blacksmith and all of his accoutrement for his little operation so there's gonna be a blacksmith and like a forge and barrels and stuff like that it looks pretty cool uh and that will be coming out i believe through the end of the year very cool uh big news out of simon eric lang is has stepped down as his role uh as an executive as game director I saw this. Yes, he's, he's officially returning to freelance. Yes, and he he's also been spending a lot of his time uh, doing uh, activism work, and so he's going to be doing more of that too. So um, he made a a very short Twitter post that reads, "It's my favorite TLDR. I'm happy. Simon is amazing. We're all super excited about the future. This is not PR speak. It's the truth." <laughs> the. Uh, the, the longer form Facebook post basically talks about how this is not a sudden decision. He's leaving on the best possible terms. They're still got a lot of projects together uh, in the pipe. And um, he was really excited about the last three years of work that he did, but he wants to return to his roots as a freelancer. And he really, really, really wants to work on his advocacy projects. So that's kind of the reason behind it. So yeah, Eric Lang, looking forward to whatever you bring out next because... Looking at my wall, you own a ridiculous, ridiculous percentage of it. I think he might be my favorite designer. I, I the more I think about it, the, the more I realize. Well, he 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 did he did what what uh, Blood Rage and uh... Blood Rage, Rising Sun, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Cthulhu, uh, not Wars. Uh, what was it? Uh, Death May Die. Cthulhu Death May Die. Uh, he did the original Star Wars card game. He did Dice Masters for Wiz Kids. I mean literally thousands of games at this point i think it feels like i mean he's just so prolific and they're all so damn good and uh ankh coming soon yes yes just filled out my uh my pledge manager for that uh yeah if anybody can figure out a way for me to sneak the box in during the rona times and my wife not see uh please email me because <laughs> that's gonna be a big ass box all right, well, Wizards of the Coast has announced a new D&D book out before the end of the year, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, which I think confirms that any of the splat books going forward will have the word everything in it because we've had Xanathar's Guide to Everything now too. 
Um, but this is going to be 192 pages. It's going to have 22 new subclasses that uh, previously have been beta tested uh, as part of uh, uh, Unearthed Arcana. Five reprinted subclasses, the Order Domain Cleric and the Circle of Spores Druid from Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, the College of Eloquence and the Oath of Glory Paladin from Mystic Odysseys of Theros, and the Blade Singing Wizard from the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. They're going to reprint the Artificer class from Eberron with one new subclass, the Iron Man-inspired Armorer subclass. Ooh. Um, they're going to have new class features, which were previously seen in UA, new feats, a new lineage system where you build your race and background all in one go for more customization options, new spells, new magic items, new high level artifacts, group patron rules originally seen in the Eberron book, sidekick rules originally seen in the D&D Essentials kit, rules for running supernatural environments, and a collection of puzzles to add to your game. And this will be out, I forget when, but soon. Jonathan. All right. Well, uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, game from FFG, uh, Journeys in Middle-Earth, is getting another expansion. We are getting, uh, what is it called? We're getting Lord of the Rings, Journeys in Middle-Earth, The Haunting of Dale, and it's comprised of a couple different parts. There's a downloadable campaign for the app, The Haunting of Dale, and there's also a figure pack that's available for it called Dwellers in the Dark. The downloadable game will require both the core set from the original game and the Shadowed Paths expansion to play it. So you need to have pretty much everything uh, everything they've released so far, which is interesting. Like, they've never done that before where they, you, you were required to have an additional expansion. Makes sense, though. Yeah, it does, uh, especially in light of the way they've been handling those expansions. So it's they, They're not... The Shadowed, um, Shadowed Paths expansions is pretty friggin' big. It's There's a lot in it. I bet it's because it requires the um, the maps more than anything else. And lastly, Wizards of the Coast has announced the Magic the Gathering schedule for 2021. In quarter one, we will have Kaldheim, which is said to be a Magic the Gathering Viking setting, Jonathan. Um, you had me at hello. Quarter two, we'll see Strixhaven School of Mages, Q4 will have two new sets coming out at the same time, Innistrad Vampires and Innistrad Werewolves, so we will be able to answer the eternal question in Magic the Gathering. Are you Team Edward or Team Jacob? We've all been at the edge of our seats waiting. Yeah, haven't we? And last but not least, the Q3 release, which is why I skipped from Q2 to Q4, is interesting. It is Magic the Gathering D&D Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. So instead of getting a magic the gathering setting in dungeons and dragons we are now getting a dungeons and dragons setting in magic the gathering so the door has now swung both ways jonathan which is fascinating i'm wondering what they're going to do my my buddy has a theory the newest set which is called zendikar rising has um there's a lot of mechanics that are based around having creatures out that are uh, a fighter thief wizard and cleric and then if you have all of them out it makes cards work better <laughs> He, he, he's thinking maybe they're going to go back to that mechanic for that set. And this will be kind of like the part two of that mechanic, which would be fitting, I guess, for the for the Forgotten Realms. But yeah. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, yeah. I, I swear I really want them at some point to release a magic set and a D&D book set in that universe at the same time. That would be great. I'm making a prediction that werewolves are going to make a comeback there. I think they're going to be the next monster du jour. Really? 
I do. I, I've noticed a lot of little telltale signs. Um, this is one of them. There's the new uh, werewolf setting coming out in the RPG system. There's also a new werewolf game coming out based on that, the White Wolf. Yeah, the problem is like werewolves in general, especially in film, are just hard to do because horror is a very cheap genre. And nobody likes spending money on it, but werewolves are not a cheap monster to make, especially if you want to make them look good. I like that werewolf movie, the 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 Wolfman, the one with uh, Benicio del Toro. I, I hope. Uh, I mean, not that the first one is in perfection, but it's got some problems. Uh, the original Howling was really good. Yeah, the original Howling is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I know they're making another Wolfman movie. Uh, that was going to be part of the dark universe, but now is not because the dark universe was a bad idea. The dark universe is now dark forever. Yeah. Well, the Bride of Frankenstein and the Wolfman are still coming out. So, and the invisible man was originally also supposed to be part of that, but now it got kind of spun into its own thing. So mm, we'll see. We'll see. But yeah, there aren't a lot of good uh, werewolf movies. I can only think of two off the top of my head that are worth a damn. And that's the howling and dog soldiers. (laughs) Dog soldiers. Dope. Yeah, that's a great movie. That's a great movie. That's a great movie. Can you? I, I, did I miss one? Yeah, uh, American Werewolf in London is great. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's a phenomenal movie. Have you watched it? It holds up. Yeah, but John Landis directed it. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> uh, I've been kind of down on him lately ever since I watched. Can't that imagine thing. why, Robert. Yeah, can't imagine yeah, why. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like that movie, but I don't know. I, I I don't know. Maybe it just it didn't work for me for some reason. Like I, the werewolf transformation sequences are really good. But Sam Winston, right? Didn't he do it? I, I thought it was the other guy. Um, I can't remember his name now. But um, I don't know. I think I think like the werewolf. Ha- like, how about this? Like American Werewolf in London is definitely like a horror comedy, but it was kind of done at a time when horror comedies were not done much and I, i've it's, seen it's a lot more horror than comedy though yeah but it's kind of a dark com- i don't know I, i've just seen that that kind of film done better more recently i like the the wolf movie from the 90s uh jack nicholson that was okay and for god's sakes teen wolf how can you not love teen wolf <laughs> let's not forget that shall we or 2014's wolf cop that that I think is tied to an episode of Rift Tracks, which I've been meaning to watch. Wolf Cop, never seen it. I know that I kind of need to. <laughs> There's one Wolf Cat, Wolf Cop poster. Do you, you remember the famous poster for Stallone's Cobra, where he's yes. holding the gun with the uh, with the the sunglasses on? Yes. Yeah, they remade that, except it's a werewolf. Again, I don't think you're not proving my point. I Don't get me wrong. There's a handful of good werewolf movies. I just think it's the hardest one to do because it has the same problem like that the Invisible Man has where the protagonist is also the antagonist, you know, and it's really hard to make one of those work right. Brotherhood of the Wolf was awesome. Did you ever see that? The, the French movie? That's not about werewolves. That was about people dressing up like a, a lion, like a monster. And you know it. It's a werewolf movie. Shut your mouth. Uh-huh. I'm on to something with uh, Teen Wolf, though, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf was good, sort of. Did you ever see uh, Ginger Snaps? That's a world, uh, werewolf. Movie. That's a good werewolf movie. Okay, I did miss that one. I would, I would call, I would, I would add that to my three that I think are good. Or yeah, I would add that to the list of movies I actually think are good. I would put Ginger Snaps in there. That's because Ginger Snaps actually had a plot and like a point and something to say. 
which is also a, a big problem in werewolf movies because as good as Dog Soldiers is and it's very fun, there is not a lot going on in that movie. It is just kind of awesome and fun to watch, but it is not trying to do anything. And and even the howling is not really trying to do much. It's just kind of a horror comedy. But yeah, Ginger Snaps actually has like a has subtext because it's about puberty and turning into wolf monster as a, you know, allegory for puberty, which is smart. I really like the uh, the the Wolfman movie with Benicio del Toro. The problem is like the last reel of the movie was wasn't great. No, the first eighty percent of that film is amazing, and then it just wait wait wait. Hollywood's right got a problem in the third act. No, yeah. no. Yeah. Speaking of which, speaking of which, let's yeah, move on to no pun. Problems. Yeah, let's move. <laughs> let's let's shift gears, shall we? Let's dive right on into this. It is, of course, time. For our No Time to Bond segment, this is part 17 of our 28-part series, where we are watching all of the 007 movies in order of release date, and we are it. We're at the, the end of yet another era. This I is know, our too soon. one, two, three, fourth Bond, and yes, absolutely too soon. We're talking, of course, about uh, the 16th film in the series, 1989's *License to Kill*. Once again, directed by John Glenn, although this was his final Bond film. Uh, had a budget of 32 million and it made 156. And interesting to note, if you if that 32 million dollars seems familiar, it's because MGM would not let them increase the size of the budget ever since Octopussy because MGM was having money tr- problems yeah, this and because right before they collapsed. Yeah, yeah. And also apparently they went way over budget on Moonraker and they were pissed at them. But Moonraker was still in the 70s, man. We're talking about 10 years later. Yeah, but this is right right after right like within a year or two of this movie coming out, MGM collapsed and got bought by United Artists. And that was part of the reason we had the big pause before Goldeneye. Yeah. Yeah. Final film of Maurice Bender doing the title screens. He didn't do them after this point. Final film of screenwriter Richard Malbaum, who co-wrote the movies with Michael G. Wilson since Free Your Eyes Only. And of course, this was the last Timothy Dalton movie. Although it was not meant to be the last. They were working on Property of a Lady when MGM got into financial trouble. When it got all sorted out, uh, Dalton's contract had expired, but he wanted to come back to do one more film, but uh, Wilson and uh, Barbara said, no, 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 you got to come back for like two or three more if you're going to come back. And he's like, then no, and he passed. Which is heartbreaking. I would have enjoyed seeing that movie, Um, which is not to say that I didn't have fun when it came back in the 90s uh, with Goldeneye, but Timothy Dalton was onto something. I don't think he ever got a chance to fully explore it. And I agree. Not doing him any favor. <laughs> no, no. Let's get that out of the way right now, Robert. This movie is a car wreck. Yeah. For all of the wonderful things that you and I had to say about the last one. Yeah. And, and how it progressed the formula and how it made it feel modern and how it made it feel, frankly, more Bond. This was like... They pulled up the handbrake, swung that bitch around on the middle of the road, slammed on the gas and said, we're going back in time, boys. Once this thing hits 88 miles an hour, we're going to see some seriously not great movie. Yeah, completely agreed. Like we spent so much time talking about Money Penny and, and all of that. Money Penny is barely in this movie and she's back to being a secretary in M's office, which was uh, it was heartbreaking seeing her like that again. I liked I liked proactive Money Penny. <laughs> I really did. It made sense for the character. Yeah. In every way, shape, and form. And this is this movie's a frankly, it's just a car accident. 
it, it's it's a horror show that you can't help but to watch. So we we missed a lot of recording dates. I watched this movie ages ago and I was like, I'll watch it again. And I couldn't bring myself to watch it again, even with the director's commentary. It was just so bad. It's a travesty. It's a yeah. mess. Yeah. All the wonderful things that they added to the Living Daylights, all the things that separated the Living Daylights from from all these these formulaic tropes that Bond had become just completely forgotten. Those lessons were gone. Yeah, no, completely. So the the overall plot about this one is Bond is in Florida for Felix Leader's wedding, which is played by the same Felix Leader from uh, uh, Roger Moore's first movie, uh, Live and Let Die, interestingly enough, which is a little weird because Timothy Dalton is obviously much younger than Sir Roger Moore, but they kind of know each other from that era. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's really weird. The, the saga of Felix... Is it leader or liar? I was thought lighter, whatever, whatever. Felix, Felix, Felix. Yeah, the, the the saga of Felix is a a crazy tale of recasting, and I don't understand it because, given how static the casting was for all of the supporting, um, yeah, they recast him every damn time they could. This is like the first time I think we've seen a guy twice. <laughs> well, uh, you know, oddly enough, like in the '90s movies, I think we see him in Cold Night. Like, I don't think he came back. No, no, no. The, the Jodan Baker plays Jack Wade, who is Felix leader in name only, you know, <laughs> or lighter or whatever. Oh, Felix right. in name he only. Was it Felix? Yeah, no. Felix never comes back until Casino Royale, where he is played by a guy. Oh, by the amazing Jeffrey Wright. And yeah, like one of my most favorite actors, I might add, like Jeffrey Wright is amazing. So anyway, anyway, we're getting off plot here. So so Bond is in the keys for Felix's wedding. But right when they're on their way to get married, there's a drug Lord that Felix has been after. So they go get him. And so like they, in the middle of, of this guy's wedding, he decides to go like grab some guns, which he obviously doesn't know how to shoot. I'm talking about Felix here. Yeah. And they go bust a drug Lord cause which is whatever. Okay. But the drug Lord gets away, but, and they end up like parachuting into the wedding and it's like, what, what is, why is this all going on? And then like in retaliation, right, wait, hold, hold on to, to, to slow you down there real quick, uh, real quick, before we get too far away from it, shout out to the stunt team for that, that stunt with the aerospatial chopper and the Cessna. Mm -hmm. Like, damn, damn, they pulled that off. And then some, uh, but this movie, uh, okay. Like, the direction, it's so obvious that uh, John Glenn had just watched a couple other prominent 80s movies uh, by John McTiernan because it has the obligatory slow-mo run at the camera with the Michael Kamen score <laughs> friggin' swelling in the background, which don't even get me started on the travesty that is the score for this movie. Oh, God, yeah, that's pretty bad. Like, to give you an example... I actually went out and bought the Living Daylight score after we watched it because I was so enamored with it. Um, yeah, it's a good one. There's, there's, there's nothing to like here. This oh, score no. is, I, I mean, like, whether you like Michael Kamen or not, I mean, the man could write some music. This is not his finest work. This isn't even close to his finest work. This is like he took the score from Die Hard, cheapened it up, and said, look, it's new, really, I promise. Yeah. Because I put some flamenco guitar in here. That makes it better. The, the drug lord guy like captures Felix and throw, gets him eaten by a shark and kills his new wife. And then Bond goes on this revenge something quest. Something that tried to, or he didn't agree with something that tried to eat him. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, and then Bond goes on this revenge quest. 
And, that, and that's the problem. Speaking of all these steps back, okay. Um, the problem with this movie is we are back to Bond just stumbling into crap. Like, he never has a plan at all through this movie. Like, he's like, I'm going to go get this drug lord. So he goes to, he figures out where Felix got ate by a shark. And he just kind of goes and murders his way there. And then from there, he finds out there's going to be a drug deal at this one area. So he ends up going there too and outrunning people without fins in the water and destroying a bunch of cocaine and stealing a bunch of money, which he uses to finance, like, going to the casino where the drug lord's base is. And then he kind of like tries to kill him, but then he gets attacked by ninjas. Friggin' ninjas show up in this movie for no reason. Yeah, and Shang Tsung completely yes. wasted. The, the the wonderful Kerry Takagawa just like... Actually, you know what? That's the biggest crime this entire movie commits. Now that, now that I stop and really think about it, Robert, the biggest crime that this movie commits is the fact that there are amazing actors cast in these roles and they're completely wasted on garbage dialogue yeah, yeah Kerry Takagawa amazing actor completely wasted completely and utterly wasted uh you've got uh, what's his name for the Goonies uh god his name escapes me uh Robert Davy Davy yeah Robert Davy yeah Davy yeah yeah uh Robert Davy uh completely wasted uh as the drug pin ki- kingpin and and the funny thing is he's chewing up the scenery and he's having fun with it He's just not supported by the dialogue. The dialogue is crap. It's utter garbage. Yeah. And and if I'm saying that on James Bond standards, that, that should mean something. Because you know what? The Bond movies, with a couple of exceptions, never really known for the strength in dialogue. Yeah. Um, also, uh, playing uh, Sanchez, the drug lord's girlfriend, is uh, Talcia Soto, who you might remember as Katana from the Mortal Kombat movie. So we have got two Mortal Kombat alums. <laughs> Or future alums, I guess. Future alums. They, they hadn't been through it yet. Yeah. And it did even make this movie better to think that, you know, Shang Tsung and Katana were both in this movie and that the ninja subplot wasn't by Hong Kong, but it was just by the outworld or whatever. Didn't make it any better. And, and it's yeah, supposed and to be Hong- the other thing. They're ninjas, but they're supposed to be for the Hong Kong police. Yeah. And ninjas are a Japanese thing. What the f***, man? <laughs> Literally, there was a moment where I was sitting there and, and it dawned on me and I, I was watching the movie and I'm like, this is stupid. This yes. Is some guy was sitting there and he's like, ah, you know what would be cool here? Ninjas. <laughs> ninjas are cool. <laughs> yes. Yes. And then, and then he gets captured by the ninjas, but they're, they realize he's a British spy, but then the drug lord comes and kills all the ninjas. And Bond's like, Oh, they were totally like, like they were totally after me. And this is part of, and it's like, Bond has no plan. He's got no plan. And, and he gets, you know, he's perfectly happy to kill the drug lord, like, just randomly at this one bit. But then he, like, gets into the dude's house. It's like, why not just shoot, kill him quietly with his bare hands, like I know he could do, and just sneak out the back, you know? Just just choke him out and leave. That's yeah, all he, he has to he do. really, for a revenge plot, he ends up, like, being way too much super spy. Yeah. And it makes no sense, because the, the British government has no interest in it whatsoever. Yeah, because he goes rogue, because they don't have jurisdiction in South America. Blah. So and and then seriously, if he did this in real life, he would not be a spy anymore. Like, how did he? He didn't do anything no, man, so cool to get his job back. He'd be disappeared. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's no coming back from this, man. And then, like, the drug lord has like a weird like cult that he funnels drugs through by dissolving it in gasoline. And then the final act is them driving around in gasoline trucks, blowing them up willy nilly. The end. And uh, I don't. I I can't. I just. I barely remember this movie from my initial viewing of this 10 years ago. I remember it not being good, but I, I, this was bad. 
it wasn't just not good. <laughs> it was and, bad. You know what makes it even harder? The, the thing that really just kind of made this even harder to swallow is that the last one was just so darn, just amazing. It was mm-hmm. it wasn't just good. It was damn good. Yeah. And then to have to sit through this travesty after that, it, it just it hurt that much more. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, it's it's like it's a shining example of everything that was wrong with the Bond movies and how they had stopped evolving and how they had stopped basically trying to redefine the character for a modern era. It felt like a late 60s, early 70s Bond movie. And this was almost in 1990. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it ends up being just a bit of a mess. And well, it's, it's, it's just another example of Eon Productions. Like, they they just, they get way too comfortable. And whenever they they finally shock themselves out of it, they do good work. Like, Casino Royale was amazing. I remember it being really good. And I remember Goldeneye actually being pretty decent, you know? I mean, it, it yeah, it, it didn't hammer out everything, but they, they at least tried. But, like, oh. Well, I mean, how about the, the, the previous one? Yeah, the, the previous one was amazing. It was a great movie because it it was it focused on being a good movie before it focused on being a good Bond movie. Yeah, well, and I think I think part of the problem is like just every two years, it's just too much. Like it's so it's getting more and more obvious as these things continue. They it it's I don't because every time they have like a gap where just something happens where they have to stop for a while and and like you know not release a movie every two years like the next movie is really good because they have time to like work on it you know but they have to just crank these these stupid films out so fast that they just they just get they just rest on their laurels and they get tropey and ugh. yeah and, and thankfully after this because all the rights issues get much more sorted out after this uh this hiatus uh we do not see the bond movie every two years uh from this point going forward which is nice because <laughs> yeah but we still ended up with Die Another Day. So who knows what actually happens there. Uh, but we'll get there soon, I guess. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. Like I said, the, the the hardest thing for me to stomach is that the last one was just amazing. And this one was just a hot mess. Yeah. And it's a pity because it's, it's, it's Dalton's last Bond. And he's the most interesting thing to happen to James Bond. I... I've always remembered him fondly because I was a kid in the 80s. And that, that meant that he was kind of like, you know... He and Moore were my bonds. Yeah. Having just watched Living Daylights again, I, I can tell you that movie, I, I wasn't just remembering it fondly because it was a fond memory from childhood. I was remembering it fondly because that's a damn good movie. Yeah. And it's just a pity that he went out on this. And honestly, like, w- was it you that sent me the, the picture of License to Kill with Dalton's face instead? Yeah, yeah. Somebody made a fan poster because yeah, they, they almost got him for it. Like they, Man, I wanted to see that. Not that Roger Moore didn't do a great job in that, but but Dalton versus Walken, holy hell, man! Why didn't we get that? Yeah, in in like some alternate universe, I think Dalton took over the role two films before he did, and I think that's a better world because uh, Moore Moore was getting long in the tooth. Not not just in this one. What was what was the oh, second God. to last one? Uh, oh, it was Octopussy. Octopussy. Yeah, Octopussy. He looked like a geriatric. Yeah. Well, he looked like a geriatric when he was wearing that grandpa sweater in uh, in the first '80s movie. But yeah, no, I think I, I they held on to him for too long. If they if they had had the courage to go to Dalton to have Dalton go up against Sean Connery, I think it would have been better. Uh, if Oct- if if Mo- uh, Dalton had four movies, you know, Octopussy, A View to a Kill, this one, and then uh, The Living I Daylights. Mean, Octopussy yeah. had some other problems that were far removed from this, but yeah, it, it, A View to a Kill. 
it, it's interesting. Octopussy was better than Moonraker, but but garbage. Then View to a Kill, they shook up the formula a little bit and made a, made better. And then, you know, uh, Living Daylights got really, really good. And then it's like, boom, hit the reset button. We're going back to the, the old formula. Yeah. Also, the young Benicio Del Toro chewing up the scenery. Mm-hmm. He was good, too. Like, yeah, there's a lot of good in this film. Like, And, and the location shooting was great in South, uh, South America. Oh, and... man, there's that one stunt with the airplane where the guy dr- drags the wingtip across the ground. That gave me palpitations to watch. <laughs> Safe to say we hated it. Um, <laughs> not much to say about Dalton's time on the series, because, you know, I mean, yeah, he only had two two things. So there's not much to look back on here. He, he had one very, by our standards, a very good film, and then one... Yeah, like it was such just like a poor man's 80s action movie, you know, like it didn't even commit to anything very well. No, no, it did. It, it was so like paint by numbers, ladies action flick. Yeah, I'm spent. I don't have anything else to say about Bond. I'm looking forward to Goldeneye. Goldeneye is the first Bond movie I ever saw in the theaters. Oh, really? Oh, man. Mm-hmm. My parents used to take me to the Bond movies every whenever they came out. My my mom and dad were both big Bond films fans. Yeah, my, my, my dad was too, but for whatever reason, yeah, I, I went out with him and my stepmom to see Goldeneye, so. Yeah, I was working in the movie theater when Goldeneye came out, so that was a particularly interesting thing, especially mm. since MGM had just bought, been purchased by UA, so it was kind of a big deal. It was their, their first big release. Nice. Nice. But that is for the next episode, which hopefully is not in another month. Yes, true, true <laughs> that. And then after that, we're going to watch Austin Powers because Austin Powers came out between Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we all really right. should watch all three of the Austin Powers movies, but that's that's not. Do that's we really too need to? Because no. it's the same jokes recycled. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it's because Spectre and and uh, the third gold member kind of have a, a link that was a critique of Spectre, but that, I, that is I think true. we, I think we could just bring it up. I don't think we need to watch the whole trilogy. I think, I think Austin Powers one is actually kind of important for the spy genre and the other ones are just kind of crappy comedies, but we'll All get right. there when we get there. We'll get there when we get there. Well, <laughs> while we're going back in time, we might as well stop in a year ago and ask what we were doing a year ago. So this is of course our year in the life segment, our segment where we look at what we deep dove a year ago and we have a little bit of time to talk about it. Forgot my dice episode. I forgot to write it down. Titled, I, for- I fought that evil and I stole its hat, which was talking about Anixia and me getting the helmet from Anixia. The t- it's been a year since we did that and yeah. we did Terror Below. Yeah. Yeah, we played Terror Below, the Totally Not Tremors, the board game. Totally not. Totally not. <laughs> Have you played it since? Uh, yeah, actually uh, a couple times and it's really held up. It's super, super fun you're never in a position where you're going to figure it out enough to, to not have fun with it. Like there's no magic key to find and unlock in it. Um, there's just enough variation and randomness to keep it fresh. And I actually, that I, one thing I really like about that one is teaching it to new people. Cause I think it, it lends itself well as a, a decent kind of mid range game where, you know, we've played pandemic, we've played flum rouge. Now it's time for you to get a little deeper, but not too deep. Nice. Well, there we go. All right. Well, it is break time again, and when we return from that break, uh, we'll be doing just a little bit more James Bond today, because we're going to be talking about legendary James Bond in our deep dive. We love getting feedback, so please let us know how we're doing by one of the following. You can become our patron over at Patreon. Search for Forgot My Dice. 
We also have a Discord page where we organize games and chat about all sorts of stuff. Find a link on our website, ForgotMyDice.com. You can also message us or tweet at us on the Twitters. Find us at ForgotMyDice. And, of course, you can email us at fmdpodcast2016 at gmail.com. Or you can head on over to our website, ForgotMyDice.com, where all of our episodes are available, plus game reviews and other content. If you like the show, the best way for more people to find out about us is to give us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Last of you, for those of you listening in the village, call the operator, give your number, and ask for us to be put on the rotation. Robert, this, this needs to stop. Listen, I'll, I'll make you a deal. I will not make any deals with you. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. Oh, I'm going to cut his cord. And welcome back from the break. It is now time for our deep dive. And today's deep dive, we are going to be talking about uh, something a little close to home, given the retrospective that we've been on for the past, what, at this point, like a year? 17 episodes. So coming up on a year. Times two, 24, yeah. <laughs> about a year. About yeah, a year. 34, for those of us keeping track of math. You said 24. Wait, I did say 24. Well, they're, okay. All right. All right. It's been more we than You know who the math genius is in here. Ha! Cer- it is certainly not me. We are, of course, talking about the new from Upper Deck. Well, actually, it's I was Gen Con last year. God, I can't believe it's been that long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the uh, it's recently gotten an expansion, the legendary James Bond deck building game based on the legendary engine from Upper Deck. The name's Bond, James Bond. Welcome to Legendary James Bond 007. In this game, one to five players can play four classic Bond movies, Goldfinger, The Man with the Golden Gun, GoldenEye, or Casino Royale. Can you foil Operation Grand Slam to end Goldfinger's plot to contaminate the gold supply of the United States? Do you have the steely nerve to beat La Chief in the high-stakes poker tournament at the Casino Royale? In the game, the players are in control. The fate of the world is up to you. You can fight against the forces of evil by yourself, or gather a cadre of up to four friends. Defeat evil masterminds as they lead powerful villains in an attempt to complete their schemes to gain power and world dominance. Jonathan, tell me how this plays. And use small words, because I don't think we've reviewed a legendary game before. I know you've talked no, about it. No, but we've them. talked about it a lot. Okay, so let's talk about the legendary um, brand for a moment. There's actually two main brands within the legendary brand. There's legendary and then there's legendary encounters and it's important to make a distinction because the legendary games are primarily multiplayer where you are uh, it's semi-co-op right you're working together only it allows you to continue the game but everybody's playing for themselves and trying to get the most points or you can play it co-op but that's not the more popular game mode nor is it the suggested game mode uh in the in the manual The Legendary Encounters games, however, are more story-based and plot-based, and that's where you see the uh, Alien and the Predator and Firefly games. Those are all the Legendary Encounters games rather than the Legendary games. And it's an important distinction to make because while they use the same core engine, there's definitely some differences in how they approach uh, mission structure specifically. And 
we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit because it's going to be important for part of my critique. But let's talk about Legendary's core gameplay for a moment. And it's a, it's a really fun engine. It's a deck builder. And if you're familiar with deck builders, then you know you start out with a hand of cards. Some let you purchase. Some let you fight. You use the purchase cards to buy more cards. Those cards make you stronger. And you use that to beat the game. Pretty straightforward, right? Yeah, yeah. It's deck building mechanics. 101. Yeah, deck building 101. And and legendary is without a doubt deck building 101 at work. But it's it's wrapped up in a pretty neat package, and it does some great things. And one of the things that I love about the legendary games is that they all come with a neoprene mat, and that neoprene mat is important because it lays out the playing field for you in a nice organized way. And for this game, that's important because there is a lot going on in terms of decks of cards. You have no less than seven decks in front of you at any given time, plus the deck that uh, is powering your hand. So if you're playing a four to five player game, you're talking about having uh, 12 to 13 decks on the table. So the playmat is great because it helps you keep everything organized. Uh, the legendary game works uh, on the basis of a conveyor belt. There's two lanes in the center of your play area. And in the case of the legendary James Bond game, one lane is on assignment and one lane is Q branch. The on assignment is the enemies. The enemies are all stacked up in a villain deck. The villain deck is very specifically built up of decks of cards that are called out in the manual that form basically a, a, a rough and well-balanced plot for you to fight against. The enemy comes out at the beginning of everybody's turn, then you use your cards to purchase and to fight, and anybody who is then um, not defeated at the end of that turn, uh, when the next player goes and starts their turn, everybody shuffles down the conveyor belt, getting closer and closer to the left-hand side of the table. And that's important because if they get all the way to the left, then that villain is gonna leave play, and that works against you in the end game. The Q branch is the second path, and that path is basically your store and you have a second huge deck of hero uh, cards. And the hero cards are, again, separate decks that are put together uh, and shuffled together to form the hero deck. And those are gonna be different from, from uh, mission to mission. So, for instance, in the first scenario, uh, in the Legendary James Bond game, you are basically recreating the, the, the movie Goldfinger. So, in the hero deck, you have James Bond, you have his gadgets, you have his um, vehicles, uh, and you have uh, Pussy Galore as a character, and you have his allies, so Felix Leiter uh, and a couple other folks from that movie. All of those decks are comprised of cards that allow you to purchase and attack much more efficiently than the ones in your starting hand. And you are going to move those onto the Q branch track, and as they are purchased, the Q branch track gets filled up, and um, yeah, that's kind of the economy of the game. Now on the left-hand side of the play area, you're gonna see a couple of spots. The first is the scheme. The scheme is kind of the overarching uh, plot of what's going on, and it also has some very specific effects that happen when, when uh, certain cards come up in the game, that, like plot twists. The plot twist card will pop out of the deck of villains, uh, or sometimes even out of the hero deck, and then a very specific action will happen, and it's never good. It always gets you. The next deck is the Mastermind deck. That deck is your chief enemy, and there will be a couple of different cards that are shuffled underneath that enemy. Uh, again, you have to defeat that enemy four times, and every time you take out a card from underneath them, and all those cards do bad things to you. And then finally, there's the Allies deck, and basically what that is is just a, a higher, um, a low-cost, 
high purchase power card that is available at any game to help you get started at the beginning if you need it. As you play, you might take wounds. Wounds are how the enemies damage uh, the players. And if you take a wound, it's basically a nothing card that gets shuffled into your deck and just starts mucking up the works. Yeah, that, pretty, that all makes pretty, sense. Pretty standard. Yeah, pretty standard. Yeah. So let's take a, that's that's the legendary engine at the core. So let's take a look at what changes in the James Bond version of that. If you're familiar with legendary, there's not a ton that you're going to to find different here. But uh, there are a couple things. First of all, there's some special starter cards, uh, you know, named things like Shaken Not Stirred or Bond James Bond. And that's going to give your character a unique ability. Uh, it's one of the ways you can differentiate the different people at the table and, and give them uh, a unique power before they even start to build out their, their deck. And are all of these different Bond abilities based off of the different actors who have played Bond? Yes, yes. Uh, there's, there's, they've got art from, um, basically they've got uh, Goldfinger, Man with a Golden Gun, um, GoldenEye, and Casino Royale are the four movies represented here. Okay, so yeah, the, the four people who played Bond the longest. Yeah, so you get four Bonds and all the associated stuff. So is Roger Moore's Bond kind of goofy and is... Uh, uh, the most recent Bond, kind of like hardcore and brutal. <laughs> I haven't played through the, the, the Casino Royale deck yet. I'll, I'll have to let you know. Okay. The other thing that's um, unique to this particular game is that the villain deck is built in a very specific fashion. And I'm not surprised to see this. This game, uh, I'm going to screw up his last name. I try so hard. This game was designed by Danny Mandel and Ben Sichowski. And if I mispronounce it, I'm so sorry. And you should know these names because these are the gents that came up with the Legendary Encounter system. And the Legendary Encounters games use the villain deck in a very different way than the Legendary Marvel games do. The Legendary Marvel games, it's pretty straightforward. You stack the villains, they get progressively harder, uh, and they come out at a random thing, and, you know, chaos ensues. They had the bright idea to change that villain deck to be a plot deck, and your it, it's constructed more specifically, where you have very specific cards for portion A of the deck, and B of the deck, and C of the deck, and all those get shuffled and stacked in a very specific way to create an escalating difficulty and a more um, a more plot driven mechanic. Does that make sense in terms of differentiation? Yeah, yeah, it does. So that something that they brought into this because this is a legendary game not a legendary encounters game and and i i had mentioned that earlier because if i'm going to critique one thing i wish it had been the other way around i wish it had been more like alien and predator where you're following the plot of the movie a bit more specifically but it's not and this is not a knock against the game it's just something that i wish but that being said they do use the villain deck a little bit differently in this game and the villain deck is very specifically constructed to have an escalating difficulty as the game goes on. Uh, additionally, there's two new card types in this game. There's gadgets and missions. Gadgets are similar to the bystanders that we saw in the Marvel game. Uh, basically, they're cards that villains can acquire, and if they get one of them and escape, it assists with the mastermind's chances of succeeding in their plot, 
uh, and it basically makes the boss character harder to beat. Missions, however, are tasks that you can complete uh, within the context of the game, and most of the time they work like a villain. They're going to enter on assignment, uh, and they can acquire gadgets, and then they can be defeated. Each mission has a danger level. If that mission is failed, and you fail a mission by having that card escape the conveyor belt by getting to the end, uh, then the overall danger level of the uh, mission rises, and that, again, gives the villain more power, gives the uh, villain uh, makes the villain harder to attack and easier to hurt you. So those are kind of some of the big, big changes from the legendary formula that are specific to the James Bond game. Okay, so question, when you play multiplayer, are you all playing the same mission, or are you basically all five of you playing different games? No, everybody's playing together. It's it's uh, You can play it as either semi-co-op, where everybody's working together to beat stuff, but you're also trying to be the one to beat the most stuff because that gets you most points. And gadgets are important in that respect because if you defeat a villain who has captured a gadget card and is trying to trundle their way down the conveyor belt to escape, um, then you get to keep that gadget, and that's bonus points at the end of the game. But I prefer to play co-op myself. And, and th- again, this is another reason why I wish that they had gone the path of the Legendary Encounters games, uh, because I think it would have been much more interesting to assign specific roles to the different players at the table. And can you mix and match your bonds? Like, could you play Broslin going up against Goldfinger? Does that have any mechanical anything? Or So the, because the game is very specifically set up to mirror movies... In the rule set, the primary focus that they have is recreate the movie. So you use very specific villains, very specific henchmen, very specific uh, set pieces and heroes from a, a movie to con- to reconstruct it, right? So like in Goldfinger, Orc Goldfinger is the bad guy. The mission is the Operation Grand Slam where they're, they're trying to steal the gold from uh, Fort Knox. Um, all the hero characters that you put into your purchase deck are all, um, you know, Sean Connery is Bond, uh, the Pussy Calore cards, and all, you know, basically uh, ancillary characters and accoutrement from Goldfinger. But that being said, the rules are very flexible. And after you've played through the constructed scenarios, they basically say, yes, you can mix and match. And that goes for the other legendary sets, too. And this is one of my favorite things about the legendary games. If you have a couple of the legendary games, the rule sets are interchangeable. So you could bring Spider-Man and have him fight Goldfinger. (laughs) That's funny. Which is cool, you know? Yeah, yeah. All right, so um, how? Anything else left in how to play? No, no, that's that's pretty straightforward. I mean, basically, your turn is you flip the top card on the villain deck. You put that into the um, the conveyor belt. Everybody else moves down and gets pushed down by that villain. Then you have purchase cards and uh, attack cards. You use those cards to either purchase additional cards or attack villains. You cannot do partial damage to a villain. You have to have the total number of points or more of damage uh, to take him out. You can't just hit him once on on turn one and then hit him again on turn two doesn't work like that uh and then the last thing is your cleanup you you draw a new hand of six cards uh and that's another difference from the legendary encounters games most of the legendary encounter games have a seven card hand limit this only has six so jonathan how is the rule book then i mean for a legendary game it's pretty straightforward i didn't have to barely read it because i uh i've played a lot of the legendary games and i understand the basic mechanics and i also understand how to parse out the cards so the one thing to kind of remember is the first time you're going through it the rule book can be a bit intimidating there's a lot of of little fiddly stuff going on 
Um, a big thing that's going to help you is to look online for a sorting guide for the for the legendary games, uh, because until you have had an opportunity to learn how the game works, I mean, you open up the box and there's 600 cards. No joke. So when you go through and do your initial sort, you can save yourself a lot of time and headache by sorting it in a specific way. So if you can find a sorting guide, do it. Otherwise, yeah, the rule book is pretty straightforward. If you follow it from start to finish, you're going to get everything you need. Uh, just understand that until you understand the basic mechanics of the game, it's going to seem a little fiddly. That passes really quick. And ha- speaking of these cards, how are the cards? And are there any other physical components that come in the box? Uh, just the neoprene mat and the cards and the rule book. That's it. Uh, plenty of storage in the box. Um, one thing I've always liked about the legendary games is that they pack these foam cubes in uh, to help you keep your cards uh, standing up and not get tossed around. The box has plenty of room for expansions. Uh, in fact, my legendary um, encounters alien box has the Legendary Encounters game, and the entirety of the Legendary Encounters uh, Queen Alien expansion, and both rubber mats, and I've still got room. So they come in in plenty of large boxes with plenty of room for um, expansions, and uh, they've, they've got some nice things. They also ship them with a large stack of dividers to help you make di- uh, dividers for your different cards. And you kind of talked about this, how you wished it was the the other game, but uh, is do. there anything else off in the execution? No, there's nothing else. I mean, there's a couple things that I wish for, and I wish for these as, as a fan, right? Like, one of my favorite things about the Legendary Encounters Alien and Predator games is that it uses original art. Instead of using movie stills, instead of using, um, you know, set pictures, they brought in comic artists and made brand new original art, and it really gives it a life of its own, even though it's telling some stories that I know very well. And in this, it just uses movie stills and it just kind of takes a little something away from it. They're fine. That's just me. I don't blame them. I, they're, they're using a movie license and they, they're trying to show off the movie. I just, I wish personally that they had taken it into the original art, but that can also backfire. <laughs> Firefly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, where is the sweet spot for players in this? Does it work well with one? Is it better with five? You can play it solo. You can play it up to five. There are some changes that you make to deck construction as you increase the number of players, which helps to balance the difficulty. Uh, So that's really great, too, because then if you play it, uh, if you play it from solo on up to five, it's fantastic because the difficulty always adjusts accordingly and it, it always feels like the same experience. But which is the better game? Just, you know, more people, less people Uh, does not matter. I don't think it matters. The only thing to kind of keep in mind is that as you add more players, you're going to have a little bit more downtime because there's really not a whole lot to do when you are not playing. One of the other cool things that the the encounters game does is that there's also a mechanic on some of those cards that lets you um, do an assist. And this game lacks that. And so that that kind of enhances that downtime because there really is nothing to do once you've played your hand other than, you know, strategizing with your your fellow players. And to wrap this little deep dive up, tell me one last thing about the game. Look, if you like Legendary, you're going to love this game. If you like Bond, you're going to like this game. I am a Legendary fan. I think that the system is really cool and I have a lot of fun playing it and I know I brought up a couple things that I wished I had seen, but don't hold those against the game. Those are my own personal wishes as a fan. The game itself is great. It's fantastic. Uh, the designers, Ben and Danny, are amazing. They have made, gosh, what now? 
I think this is their seventh legendary game. So, so they know the system well, and they know what makes it tick. And most importantly, they know how to balance it so that it's never easy, but it's never impossible. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan. I, I've loved the Legendary games for years. Legendary Encounters Alien is one of the first kind of hobby board games that really sucked me into the hobby. And ever since then, I've got a shelf dedicated to Legendary games. I've got uh, six of them plus a bunch of uh, expansions. And none of them are the Marvel one. Go for it. <laughs> All right. Well, that is Legendary James Bond 007. It's fun. Uh, brought to, brought to you by fun. Upper Deck. That Upper Deck. I don't know what else to say about that. Do they make any other games? Yeah, they made a. Uh, they've made a. Oh, they do times. the. They used to do the Versus system. I know that. Yeah, they did the Versus system. That's Ben and Danny too, actually. Uh, I had the Versus game and a bunch of the expansions. That's a great game. I, I bought it back when it was a collectible card game and Batman themed. Well, with that, my friend, that brings us to the end of another episode, which means. It's time for our closing thoughts. Once again, always join us on all of our digital domains. We'd love to hear from you. Gosh, man, Robert, I can't believe this is 94. Yeah. Countdown yeah. to the 100's a real thing. I can taste it now. It's in the air. Mm-hmm. Just like this No, that would, that, would, that would be smoke where I'm at. On your coast, not on mine. Oh, true, 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 true. A little smoky here. Yeah, if you're out there and you are affected by any of the fires, uh, may I just say my heart goes out to you and the best of luck and let us know if there's anything we could do. or Have you seen one. some of the surreal pictures that have been coming out of uh, Oregon yeah, especially? I've, I've got friends in L.A. Um, some some have been displaced. There's another big one down in San Diego that displaced some of my friends. Like all the orange pictures from all the crap in the air. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's surreal. Yeah, the sky was red in uh, up here in Oregon, like red. I've never seen it like that before. Yeah, it's all the it's all the ash in the air. I know um, it's weird. My my buddy down in L.A. Uh, he put some pictures up of his car this morning, and it was coated in a good solid eighth of an inch of ash this morning. Wow. And then um, I had some friends in San Diego actually get displaced, and then I have another friend up in Seattle who there was a big brush fire on the hillside behind his home, and thankfully this, the the wind was going the opposite direction, so um, it ended up burning away from him. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, like, it's the entirety of the West Coast is burning right now. Yeah, don't I know it. Don't I know it. So stay safe. If there's anything we can do for you in, in any way, shape, or form, let us know. We'd be more than happy to pander for you. And, um, yeah, just everybody be safe out there. And, and remember, with all that crud in the air, it's not the Rona. You're just, it's the ash. Yeah. yeah. Also, I'm done with the Rona, man. Can we just be done with it? Uh, no, no. We, we have vaccines that need to get pushed through, perhaps unsafely. Perhaps. You know, at this point, honestly, I have not eaten at a restaurant in seven months. Um, Sign me up. I'll be the test bed. I don't care. (laughs) Yeah, I was reading the history of uh, botched vaccines. Like, yeah, no. (laughs) Pass. Do you know uh, there was some vaccine that gave people narcolepsy if they took it? Full on narcolepsy. And then there was the polio vaccine that just one third of them just gave people polio on accident. Whoops. So yeah, maybe don't screw that up. That's not yeah. what you're trying to do with the vaccine. That's actually the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, yeah. I read about one that gave people narcolepsy. It was for a swine flu that they screwed up, and yeah, narcolepsy. 
sometimes it that was just your new life now <laughs> you just had narcolepsy congratulations yeah yeah science man just take it slow do it right the first time yeah good things can't be can't be rushed yeah i guess that's my final thought well that brings us to the end of another episode of the forgot my dice podcast then all we have left is the outro my friends which means it's time to be excellent to one another and party on party on jonathan The music you heard in this podcast was intro by Elithiel. Additional music was provided by Brian Winkleman. Funding for the Forgot My Dice podcast was provided by our supporters on Patreon. Thank you.